Okay, tonight I hope y'all will take some scriptures down. And actually, I worked on this subject. I've never written on this subject before, so I couldn't wait to see what I believed. And so, uh, anyway, there's some good scriptures on it, and then also some points that I want you to answer so that we can make a change. Anyway, tonight's lesson, and what we're going to be speaking on, is patriotism. How does patriotism work with Christianity? Do they war against each other? Do they complement? How should we feel? Are there some warnings, dangers? Patriotism. So, in my generation, I was taught patriotism in school, in history and government, in my required reading, the library, the celebration of holidays. The teachers were not afraid of this concept of patriotism. My, have things changed. I would say, oh my, teachers better be going back to teaching patriotism again. When I'm talking about the concept of wondering about patriotism and does it war against Christianity or does it cause a kind of a conflict, have you ever had that thing where you look at our flag and the sunlight was coming through and you just felt this love for our country, just looking at the flag or it being raised up, you know, and as it goes up in the sunlight? Or have you ever been at a funeral and it was a guy who served our country and they did the 21-gun salute? And it just does something to you. I mean, it just moves you. But not as much as this when you sing God Bless America. And you start singing through those amber waves of grain. You've ever driven in Kansas and different places and you just see the wind moving through the grain fields. You can see where the person wrote it from sea to shining sea. And have you ever found yourself singing God Bless America or the Star Spangled Banner and you find yourself singing it like you're singing a hymn and you've had to pull back a little bit and think, oh my gosh. But you have that feeling come up in you. Am I the only one that thought, you know, that you're feeling that, wow, I feel as, as much emotion here as I feel in other places. Kind of scares you a little bit. Some of those hymns are so powerful. We sang the other day about the one where, what is it, the Grapes of Wrath, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It's powerful. I mean, it's scripture. It's a great song. So I was going to tell you that the way that I want to deal with patriotism is I want to deal with it as a love that God created. C.S. Lewis puts it in these terms. He speaks of it as a sub-love, subhuman love. Like he has a set of loves that he says aren't like the natural loves of Storge and Eros and Phileo and Agape. But he calls these a different type of love, subhuman loves. And a love that people have that's in this category is nature. There are people who love nature. We're not talking about an admiration of beauty. It's deeper than that. It's almost where it's a religion to them. Have you seen those nature lovers? The love of one's country. Patriotism. And it's based on our country's past. It can be the love of college. I mean, there are colleges that are so established that there is a love for that college. Mm -hmm. That religious feeling you get when you sing the alma mater of your college. The love of home, the place we grew up, the love of old acquaintances, of familiar sites. So tonight when I talk about the love of one's country, I'm going to invite you not to be afraid of love. I'm extending an invitation to you. And study different aspects and concepts. And I want you to indulge me for about five minutes as I take you through C.S. Lewis's thought, I have tried to scrape the British accent away, his terminology. And so I tried to interpret C.S. Lewis for you. So I would ask that you would have patience with me for a minute. As we look at how C.S. Lewis, he studied the subject of patriotism. And it's very interesting from a man who fought in World War I and went through World War II and what the Brits went through. 
as much as I respect Britain, notice when he talks about patriotism, he's talking about Britain. <laughs> so anyway, I was going to say the idea of patriotism is tied to what is common and familiar. Lewis says, I think love for one's country chiefly means love for people who have a good deal in common with oneself. Your language, your clothes, your institutions, your ideas. And that is very much like the love of one's family or school. Or like for anyone who has once lived in one's hometown. As you know, Lewis had his eye on something larger. Of course, Lewis is not going to leave it there. He goes on to say, any natural help towards our spiritual duty of loving is good because it gives God something to build upon to get us to higher loves rather than only just having merely natural instincts and impulses because you can have natural impulses towards sex producing children kinship and old acquaintances without having a love so love elevates it to a certain degree love is that mysterious ingredient that it's hard to define. Yet, when you listen to the radio, it's full of love songs. And people constantly say, I don't believe in God because I can't see him. But yet, they definitely believe in love. Even though it's a concept that you really can't see nor put in a test to. Because you can have marriage without love, sex without love. You can have all these things without love. What is love? So, as we're defining patriotism, it is a form of love. Now, I'm going to quote something that C.S. Lewis found interesting. He loved this guy, Chesterton. He was a writer as well. You probably know him. But as Chesterton says, listen to this, a man's reasons for not wanting his country to be ruled by foreigners are very likely the same reasons for not wanting his house to be burned down. <laughs> because he could never even begin to enumerate all the things he would miss. A little bit of wisdom in that. People say they're not patriotic who have not had their house burned down who have not lost their country. And I'm going to dare to say every young generation person has no idea what they're talking about if they lost their country. They may have lost their patriotism, but it is the prelude to losing their country. And so we must stop it when it's a thought in order for it not to become a full-blown consequence. And so in the levels of patriotism, let's look at what CS says. Patriotism is in its best sense built upon the love we feel in a family with the sense of loving those outside. So you have a family unit and you love those outside. Jesus commands us to love our neighbors and that begins next door on our street at the community center at church. Sometimes it's hard to love those you go to church with. So you see Jesus commanding that love for the neighbor and then let's add in there the extended family, the aunts, the uncles, the cousins. And the picnics, the domino games, the baseball. Patriotism is the sense of family. Lewis says that it produces the spiritual muscles which grace may later put to a higher service. Now, the problem, and why we're having problems with this structurally in our country, is some people have never had a sense of belonging, a sense of home. They feel disconnected from people and places around them. They don't have that feeling of tie a yellow ribbon around the oak, oak tree. So when I come home, you feel that, that feeling of, oh, home. The brokenness has caused us problems completely across our nation. Therefore, this has gone into the inability to love the country. The extended family, as far as something to celebrate with, is almost non-existent. 
the breakdown of the family, the problem. The next thing that C.S. Lewis says is our attitude about the past formulates the second ingredient of patriotism. I wonder if you can guess this one. Lewis says what I mean by this is those great stories that live in our imagination. If you were part of my family, we told stories around mealtime. It was one story after another. Patriotism is stories. And you must tell your stories. It's the understanding of George Washington. Actually, you think of George Washington, you think of that tight little vest he wore, that long coat, and the fact that bullet holes were in it, and how did the bullet holes not go into the man? Where even the Indian chief, pagan as he was, knew that God was protecting him. You think of Johnny Appleseed, and people are lost. Yes, I give you names you've never heard of. I expect you to be smarter than the other people. It bothers me when I ask who Clark Gable is and no one knows. So as we do this, I'm expecting you to write down a name that you've not heard of and look it up. Google it. So Johnny Appleseed, Daniel Boone, Lewis and Clark, George Washington Carver. These are unique people in history. These are our stories. These are our history. England is the land of Shakespeare and the land of missionaries. They filled the world with missionaries, some of the great preachers. We have our reasons for being patriotic. And these are the ones who anchor us. Listen to these words, and impose an obligation and to hold out an assurance to us. Did you know patriotism holds out its hand, giving you assurance? It tells you if there has been faithfulness to your nation here, then faithfulness will extend by providence. We know the reality of a country's history is dotted with good and likely smeared with a little evil. But unbridled cynicism is not the solution. The opposite of patriotism is being a cynic. When you hear somebody that's not patriotic, they have let cynicism come into their heart. Lewis says that he thinks it is possible to be strengthened by the image of the past. So people are lacking the strength that they need by not having these images in the past. You can do it without either being deceived or puffed up. These images don't have to create either extreme. He suggests that the heroic stories ought to be passed down so that our imaginations may be stroked. Stoked. Stroked and stoked. That you have to have something that it causes you to come alive. They actually say in literature that what C.S. Lewis wrote in Narnia and some of the other tales that he wrote that illustrate the gospel actually use a piece of your brain that nothing else will stimulate. Analogies, stories, imaginations. And this is what captures a person. Did you know that they said it's much healthier for you and for your brain and for children to listen to the radio than it is to watch TV? Because TV puts the image there and makes you lazy. Radio stimulates you to have to think. You imagine. It stimulates your brain with the studies that they've done on what lights it up. So in the old days, their entertainment in the evening was to come in and listen to radio programs. And it actually created the imaginations of kids to come alive. Every person's movie in their head was different than, than the other person. So I'm inviting you into the world of imagination. Do not let the devil have that. The devil has stolen our kids by taking their imagination where it ought not go. It's been perverted from something that is very pure and very clean, and that's the fact that we as Christians should own the imaginative side of our nation, of our creation of love. 
And so that's where I invite you into, is to allow yourself to imagine. Allow yourself to do something different. That's where I would invite you to join up with the radio and let it do its work inside of you. Lewis suggests that the heroic stories ought to be passed down so that our imaginations might be stoked, not as a form of indoctrination that positions or poisons our opinions, but as stories unto their own. For the schoolboy who hears them should dimly feel, Lewis says, that he is hearing epic legends. Let him be thrilled in any mind which is worth a penny or a penny's worth of imagination. It produces a good attitude towards, you're not going to believe this, Patriotic stories produce a good attitude towards foreigners. Who would have believed it? It's exactly opposite than what they're teaching. How can I love my home without coming to realize that other men, no less rightly, love theirs? It actually teaches you an appreciation for other people's homeland. Unless, of course, I've added this, the other person's homeland is built on fear and hate. Unless the other person's homeland is built on hate and fear, it's not the same. But in a culture that deeply appreciates, deeply loves, you will find a kinship that they find home in Switzerland, just as amusing and wonderful as we find home. Well, I can't say Texas, maybe not that good, but what are the other states? So the problem is when we cease to be romantic about our history. There are very strong, healthy stories that need to be told by you to the next generation. When people become cynics in the late 60s, all of this ceased with patriotism. With the 60s, the late 60s, left the patriotism of the nation. Don't kill your idealism and your imagination. And your country is full of that history. Number three, the third strand of patriotism is probably the most recognized. And Lewis calls it a firm, even like a practical belief that our own nation, in sober fact, has been and is still markedly superior to all others. Let me put it in other words. One who his country is to have the bravest of men and the fairest of women. That's how you feel. The problem. There should be things that you really, really, really like about home. Your family. The way you were raised. The color should be brighter. The memory should be more dear to your heart and the girls should be prettier. Fourthly, Lewis says that patriotism, since it is a love, can have that ingredient of duty toward other countries, not out of kindness, but from a supposed position of power. Even though we look down our nose and say, oh, that's terrible that we take care of them because we see ourselves as better, he said it actually because it's love works correctly. I shall move along as we tell that aspect and you will see it in a later point. But some nations who have also felt it has stressed the rights they have, but not the duties. So some nations, when they start seeing themselves as a nation, they only see the rights they have as being a nation. And you'll hear that among the ones that are demanding their rights. But they don't realize that it's the duties. This came into play with the hatred of such people as the Jews. But it's the concept of a chosen people. These layers don't necessarily build in a systematic way, but they can. At the root, there seems to be the simple want and love for home and place. And sometimes that place becomes threatened 
and it needs to be defended. So the problem is you will fight for something you love because it's good and it has a right to exist. But if you no longer see it as good, you will no longer fight. America, patriotism, it starts here at home where we are. What do we truly believe about it? And what you believe about America will determine the amount of duty you feel towards this country. You know, we see us in our inception in the beginning that Europe was overrun. There wasn't religious freedom. There wasn't an ability to, you know, to have just normal freedoms that men had a desire to have. Like it started building up inside their hearts of thinking, could we truly be free? Like, I would love to live in a country where I could have freedom, where I could practice and worship God the way that I want to, where I could have a chance with hard work to be successful. America was an idea before it was a place. It was something that inside their heart they hoped really existed. America was a chance to start over. It was the ability for humanity to have a complete reset. And that's how we were birthed. It's a grand idea, and as they call it, the experiment. And that's where I would invite you to think of what is your idea? What is it that you most long for? Because usually you will get what you want in life. So if your want, if your love is not this, it is what you will lose. As you look at America, its birth, its life, it wouldn't hurt you during this season to write down what is it about America that I think is a gift to the world. You know, one guy wrote a series of books. I have a couple of them. One's The Gift of the Irish. And he shows how the Irish made contributions to the world. The next book he wrote was The Gift of the Jews. And what they have contributed. And I would say, what is the gift of the Americans? What have we brought to the table? For every group should contribute something to the world picture. It should bring something to the table that is unique, that is their gift to humanity. Remember what I quoted on C.S. Lewis once? I said, when two people pull away from the herd, some people do it because they're offended, or they're angry, or they're hurt, or they want their rights. But some people pull away from the herd in order to heal the herd. I'm saying a nation has the collective power to bring something to the table to heal the problems we face in the world. What makes America unique? This is what makes America exceptional. And we've heard that term, American exceptionalism. Why do we not teach it? If I defined what do we do here at Crosslines, what is our gift to the world? You know, we sat there in a leadership meeting a few years back and everybody wrote what they got out of Crosslines. And I mean, we were writing and writing and writing and and everybody just, I mean, the page is black with what everybody put, put together on the poster. And when we defined it, we finally said that what we decided was Crosslands helps you find your uniqueness. So instead of being so worried about the word exceptionalism, I would say what we're looking for is what makes America unique. You can't contribute if you do not know what makes you unique. I think somehow we're afraid of being great. And there's no way to ever be humble unless you're great. Because if you try to be humble and you're not great, you have nothing to humble yourself for. There's nothing unique about you. Humility is when you have something to lay at the feet of the Lord. 
when you have something to lay at the feet of, of your community. You have to be special in order to be humble. It's completely different than we look at it. It doesn't mean that you're uh, insecure and no good to be humble. That's not humility. That's poverty. So what makes us exceptional? Well, the first thing about American exceptionalism, we're just going to look at a few ideas, is God established us. It is clear how God uniquely brought this country together, one nation under God. And we acknowledged it. We admitted that God is the one who brought our nation together. And that's why we still have it in our currency, in our prayers, that we see that the reason that we're great is because of our God. Number one, with the American exceptionalism of understanding that God is overall, we see ourselves as inherently different than the rest of the world. We see ourselves as uniquely different by the very fact that God did this miracle to create us at the point in history when he did, that it made us different. We're the first new nation. American ideology, liberty, individual responsibility. A unique form of government, capitalism and economics. And you will love this statement. The idea that America has a unique mission to transform the world. Do we believe that? With no apologies. That America has a mission to transform the world. We are unique as individuals. We're unique in the sense there is the thing where Jesus, we talked about it, where there's group judgments, there's group generations, and there's group nations. The Lord looks at it, woe to you, Capernaum, woe to you, and he speaks to us in communities. So the uniqueness that we have is individual, and it's collective as the group that we've been positioned in. Cultural, you have to appreciate your own culture in order to have something to give. Not that we don't fix our faults, but we tell ourselves we are worth fixing. You cannot fix your faults if you don't think you're worth it. People that cannot take correction do not think they're worth fixing. That's why they fall apart. America has got it right in some very important areas. American exceptionalism is actually the stewardship of freedom. And that is a beautiful thought. As an old man told me, I was in the jungles of Vietnam, and he came to me and he said, I was a little boy in the camps of the American soldiers in the Vietnam War. And he started telling me the name they gave him. He told me the food they fed him. They told me the love they gave to him. And he said, I want you to take a, a message back home to your soldiers. And even though many of the Vietnam soldiers don't feel like they did a good job or that it turned out the way they wanted or that it was a dismal failure by a cynical government, he said, we did not even have the idea or the language to describe freedom until the Americans brought us that understanding. He said, tell the Americans we are free. And he pointed to his chest. He asked me, would you please deliver that message to your veterans that thank you for the gift of freedom. Came with a high price. But until you're not free, you don't understand what it means. And that little boy, as an old man looking at me, was telling me it changed my life just knowing that freedom existed. 
I read a book by a lady who I handed her a Psalm 91 book and she handed me a book called Goodbyes Not Forever. She grew up in Ukraine when it was in terrible disrepair. It was under communism. It was in a terrible shape. And so she grew up under communism only to move to Germany and be under Nazism. She was an older lady who handed me the story of her parents. Goodbye is not forever. It's a story of her parents parting ways. Would they ever meet again? They didn't part on purpose. But in the story, she says the first taste that she ever had of chocolate was an American soldier. She married him. She had never experienced freedom. It's the same lady who told me, I know y'all think your Christmases are secular. She said, but to me, we had no Christmas. We had no celebration. And she said, the very fact that you celebrated brought hope and life and joy to us that we have never experienced. It was just like chocolate. What do we have? It's a stewardship, y'all, of freedom. What's it worth? You might consider what's been paid for it in the past. You might consider what was fought to keep it free in the very beginning, in 1776, and what we face today. How does God feel about this? You know, in Jeremiah 29, 7, it's very unique how God looks at things. He says this about this. I wonder what he thinks about the gift he's given us. This is seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, that's a mouthful. Seek the peace of a city that actually captured you, that actually puts you in captivity. Seek the peace and the prosperity of it. When you were carried off into an exile, pray for it. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The Jews did not have a problem with prospering. Neither did their prophets, and neither did God. He's telling you, if you like the way you live, and you like to prosper, pray for it. Seek its peace. Seek the peace of the city. Foreigners. The people that I see that have trouble right now with patriotism, many of them that are leaders, are foreigners. Perhaps they're foreigners because they came from another country. Perhaps they're foreigners because their parents never taught them to love what they had. But I was reading this. I'll tell you this story that this man told, but foreigners have trouble with our patriotism. I would rather tell his story than mine because mine are too personal if I start naming names today. But he said, one Sunday morning in college, I attended a church with a European friend who hadn't been to many American churches. So after the service, I asked him, what did you think of the experience? Oh, it was fine, he said, but I could tell something was troubling him. So I pressed him a little. Finally, he said, why was there an American flag next to the pulpit? Good question. Honestly, though, I hadn't even noticed. Every summer in vacation Bible school, we pledged the allegiance to our American flag, then the Christian flag, then the Bible. Our church's second largest weekend celebration after Christmas was the 4th of July. Why wouldn't there be an American flag in the sanctuary? But for him, as I would later discover, for many Christians who are not Americans, the presence of the flag in the sanctuary signals too close of a relationship between Christian faith and American patriotism. Oh, my. Is there a danger for Christians who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven to put too much love into country, or is there a danger of not putting enough, I ask? Too close. As we merge these things, 
You know, the church is not a building. The church is you. And as you are a citizen of America, the things have already merged. There is no separation. As you serve in government, as you serve in the military, as you serve as a citizen. But let's ask that question. Why not just the kingdom? Why not just love the Lord? Why patriotism? Well, I know my own journey. When I went to China, I felt like a duck out of water. I didn't know if I could make it three and a half weeks in a place that the culture was so different. In fact, I found some uh, inner peace when I went and stood by a picture of a cowboy and a horse that said Texas on it. I just felt like, oh, this is so rough. And in fact, I was something that punished me to be on a team of 200 people. And we were the only two Texans with 200 Americans that knew not Texas. I felt myself just something was wrong. And I realized that getting out of my bubble was a shock to my system. Well, the next time that I felt it was when I went to Ireland. And it wasn't American pride that was getting me in trouble, but it was my Texas identity. So I had some things that happened inside of me that had to transform for me to be able to minister to them and to win them. There is something that will happen to you that you realize that the kingdom of heaven is much larger than you thought. We have a greater harvest than we ever dreamed. The first and foremost duty was my love and my duty to the kingdom of God. All other allegiance pales compared to what I have to do for the harvest. I had to humble myself to reach the Irish. And it was the first time that I ever had gone in, got on my knees, and surrendered that part of myself, my identity to the Lord. And I came out a much more effective person for the kingdom. You know, Rachel Coons told me, she said she had never realized it until she moved to Georgia. But she said, Texans are the only ones that keep their state identity wherever they go. And we do. There's something about it. And she said, I thought it over. Was it good? Was it bad? And she said, in fact, I came to realize that your identity in your state is very much a gift to us. So we not only have the American pride, we want to use that word loosely, I would say American respect, but also our Texas strength and identity. There's something to us that we feel that we're rooted in God, that God made us extra special. We always make the joke that uh, heaven is a local phone call. <laughs> Patriotism of my homeland, identity in Texas, it's a gift that God chose me to live here, to be born here, and for my grandparents to settle in this land. And in the traveling that I've done, I've had a strong sense of the kingdom when I started realizing I had family in all other parts of the world. And I met Christians. There were times I met people from India, and I felt family, a love that I couldn't express. Like, it was miserable flying to these countries so far away. Like, I was like, it uses two days of my life to get there, five flights into the Philippines. But there's family, and sometimes I have to get up and go see family. It's the family of God. And when you hear them worship in their language, and it's our tunes, but their language Culturally, there's nothing like it. It's so fun to see Jesus done in another culture. Jesus worshipped in another language, just with its own. It's like the first time you taste Mexican food. It's just like you see Jesus in the Filipino culture. And it's just, it's a unique flavor, blend, brand. Yes, there's a strong sense of family. But 
What do I feel for here? Here is home. It's the hub. It can be part of that occupying that we are called to do. You know, Jesus told us, occupy till I come. I told my cousin, I do not want to go all over the world and win a thousand people and lose my own soul. I said, it's imperative that my family trusts the Lord. For I've traveled a long ways to win others to Christ, only to feel like I'm losing my own when my own family doesn't take it seriously. Occupy. Occupy. It's so important in understanding patriotism. The foundation of our country. Our country was built on laws. Laws that were created from the Word of God. Laws that were full of wisdom and strength that have withstood the test of time. If you've ever studied how many constitutions nations have over a period of years, and that our constitution has withstood the test of time, not because it was built on man's thoughts, but because it was built on God's thoughts. We as a country have valued the Word of God, and we value prayer, and we value evangelism. We felt like we were here to even win the natives to Jesus with no apologies. No apologies. When you meet savages, they must be one. It's the New Testament version of how to deal with those that are in the land. And when I meet immigrants, with no apologies, they must come to our way of love, our way of understanding the wisdom of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it has changed my life. We value it. This is the foundation of what makes us great. We are great because we have a great God. Let me give you another thing. What's the definition of patriotism? The word itself, what does it mean? Well, it comes from both the Latin and the Greek, where it refers to the love of the, you know what patriotism comes from? The love of the fatherland. The fatherland. The land of our fathers. What if we were to consider patriotism instead as the full recognition of the love of our father's land? I think we might be on to occupy till I come. That we are in stewardship of what belongs to God. You know, Israel has this ideal, and I've heard this, and I haven't checked into it when I was over there, but you never actually buy a piece of Israel. You don't actually own the land. It's actually, they make the land deeds more of a lease, and they just make it long enough that you'll live and die before it's over with. They retain Israel as Israel, so that Israel never gets in the hands of foreigners. Perhaps we should do so. So the almighty buck does not own our land with foreign investors. For we have the right to steward our land. I've never understood why people would sell out for money to foreigners that don't understand the ways of God. It's a stewardship, or it's just the prodigal who sells his inheritance for nothing. Esau, who gave up his inheritance, his birthright, his land, for nothing and was despised of God. I think to not have patriotism and an understanding of the land of our fathers is a cheap sale, and it's despicable in the sight of God. What Americans feel that the citizens of the other nations can't understand is God gave us the land. 
So it's a lie that has come on our kids to believe, oh, it's very selfish, it's very prideful, it's very evil to believe that you should be patriot, that you should be so selfish that you look only after American interests. When in reality, they're selling their birthright, their inheritance, their land. They're selling what God has given them, and they have never understood what it means to be a steward and to give an account. And that's what patriotism means by the very definition. That's what Americans feel. We feel our stewardship that we will answer to God. The chance to start over, to create our own government, to make this city the way we want it to be and to be free. The danger of anti-patriotism. Well, did you know there's another nation that perhaps I love, like I love America. Another nation that is similar with a similar history, but it's very ancient. One of the most ancient people groups known to humankind. Israel. Israel. It was God's idea. And what he gives as a gift when he makes a nation is land. And what he gives with land is boundaries. And perhaps you should look and see where those boundary lines are for Israel. The greater Israel, as they call it. The land he gave to the Israelis. Now, if you believe the way that I'm talking, not even all uh, Jews believe the way that I'm talking, but they do say all Israelis believe the way that I'm talking. <laughs> In Israel, they said there are Israelis and there are Jews. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Zionism. You know, when you go into the country, they go, oh, you're a Zionist. Oh, you're a Christian Zionist. Oh, you're evangelical. Oh, okay, we understand you. They have to understand you to give you pass. And you work for quite a while to make sure they thoroughly understand your entire heritage, your, all your motivations, and which holidays you celebrate. And then they put you in a peg and you're okay to pass. And so um, I had not realized how difficult it was to get through some of these um, friendly interrogations with the concept of being a Zionist. I was also kind of shocked of how many people had fought in 1948 wars and different ones, and they didn't see Zionism quite the way that I did or the land or anything else of stewardship. I'd just seen Zionism as extreme love for the country and that God had created it and he had some future plans for it and that it was a complete miracle when it became a nation again in the eyes of the world in 1948 and God started bringing the people groups in and the Hebrew language came alive on the streets. I mean, my lands, Israel. I mean, they were laughing in the 1900s that there was no such thing, and here we are. I love it, and God loves it. But I did have a, a, a sassy Jew, a, what would you call him, a, an old codger, a, a lackable, lovable character of a man, a Jewish-American living in Tel Aviv, Murray, in his 90s. And he was just talking along nonstop. He knew nothing about me. He knew nothing about anything we were doing except I had handed him my Psalm 91 book and mom and stuff. And I were enjoying his pleasant trees and enjoying the fact that he understood America for having lived there. And he told me, well, I'm going to tell you something. You may be a Zionist. He had figured this up. He owned the printing company in uh, Tel Aviv. But he says, I'm just going to tell you something. He says, when you come into the country, don't tell them that you're a Zionist. He goes, that will mess everything up. He said, just make something up. Tell them you're going through a divorce. It'll give you a lot less hassles. <laughs> and I laughed at him. Here he was in his 90s giving such advice as that. But you know what it's saying? Anytime you have love, it makes it complicated. Anytime you really believe in something, he says, just make something up like something 
terrible. I mean, you can be a two-time in person, and they do not care about that. They don't care what you're doing secularly. But if you should dare say there's something that motivates you, that has some depth and some love to it, it causes such complications that they'd rather hear you're just going through a divorce and need a little bit of space. It's true. It causes less complications for people to think you're motivated by love or money. <laughs> that was also explained to me at the Hebrew University that I attended in the taxi cabs. But anyway, I was going to tell you that these are unique features, not just to America, but that you can understand them. You know, having a respect and a love for Israel, God gave them the land. And it's the same as our appreciation for America. It's the same type of patriotism because of the fact that God gave it to us. Is there patriotism in the Old Testament? I was walking back through different scriptures and examples thinking, did they feel patriotic towards their land? How would you define that? How would you illustrate that? You know, you think of in Kings, in the second book of Kings, it relates about Elisha. And he, he cures this guy called Naaman, who is actively involved in war with Israel of conducting warlike raids to kill Israelis. But the commander is sick. And you hear Naaman declare when Elisha heals him and saying, now I know there is no God in all the earth except Israel. Except, exceptionalism, we contain our God. That's what Elisha said, bring him to me so that they know that there's a God in Israel. We have to be great or they don't respect us. That's what Mike Arthur said when, in World War II, the Japanese had lost. They did not think their gods would lose the war. And he says, when you get another country down and they've been defeated, that's the time to evangelize because they're thinking of their gods to let them down. They failed them. It's all based on power. Leverage. That's how they think. And we missed our perfect opportunity to get Japan evangelized the way we should. Because MacArthur, our general, called for evangelists, occupy the country. He knew it was the only thing that would truly change the Japanese heart. We're thinking small, defeated. We despise it. We, as a Gentile church, we think humility is smallness. We think it's insecurity. We think it's apologetic. We have all other misconceptions other than what God said is you were meant to bless the other nations. And you have to have that dare inside of you. Bring the person to me so that they know that there's a God in Brownwood. So that they know that there's a movement of God that God is stirring in Texas. Those romantic feelings, those tears, the songs of Zion being sung in a foreign land. You can't read Psalm 137, 2 through 3 without it stirring you. For there on the willows we hung our harps. For there our captors requested a song. Our tormentors demanded, sing a song of joy. Sing us a song of Zion. How can we sing a song of the Lord in a foreign land? The tears. The Jews for 2,000 years were homeless, looking for their land. Next year in Jerusalem, we'll be back. We're singing the songs of Zion in a foreign land. I received a news clip of they're on the streets of Jerusalem. Throngs of people looking like our march, singing the songs of their Messiah, coming back into the land. 
on the anniversary of the 67 war when they got Jerusalem back into their hands and liberated it. We had to work our way through the crowds because they were singing, the seculars were singing about the Messiah and their land. In every Jewish heart is concealed the knowledge that Jesus will return. Whoever sings songs, listen to this, to a heavy heart is like one who takes off their garment on a cold day. These songs were meant to sing with joy, Proverbs 19.20, and with happiness. Israel, patriotism, how can we understand our own patriotism if we don't go to the Bible? This is why we're commanded, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Then I can say, pray for the peace of Washington, D.C. Sing the songs. Pray the prayers. Like America, like Israel. We have things that we share in common. Abraham, the nations were established by God to be a great nation. Both are a nation that became a melting pot of peoples coming from all over the world. Both had their pioneer days. We took 300 years to be established. Israel, 70. Their economy, their ability to assimilate came very quickly. The distinctions in Israel are their recipes. The people are unified with Hebrew and their love, with their military, with their language. What do I say about patriotism? I want you to think about this. First Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Did you know a nation can be holy? What saving? Where is that holy nation? If it's not us, who will be that city on a hill? A holy nation. Can we lift up our eyes and say this is a holy nation? Even when the Jews didn't act like it, God still said, this is my holy nation because my name's on them. If America falls, the Gentiles will blaspheme. It's up to us to keep this from happening. There can be sheep nations. There can be a holy nation. Where there are nations that are not holy, God and country are enemies with each other. And ours, why are we criticizing God and country being together? Why have a problem with the flag next to the pulpit? It should be. The same is true that we are merging. It does go into our identity. But God and country are enemies in places where Hitler, secular, Marxism. Write this verse down. Psalm 33, 12 through 22. Blessed is the nations whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We are blessed as long as God is the Lord and that we are his people. You know, if at some point in our history, if we get someone who's in leadership who isn't patriotic, I dare say you should not vote for such a man. If he does not love God, and if he is not patriotic, God forbid, let's say the wrong guy becomes president and a leader. What becomes a patriotism? It is a danger. It is the worst case scenario to prepare for. It could be the looming present and clear danger that we face as a nation to allow such a thing to happen. You know, I had a friend write me from Israel today, and he said, how do we deal with folks who say they won't get involved in civilian affairs according to 2 Timothy 2.4? The responsibility of being a citizen in a nation that is by the people and for the people. You should cherish your God-given vote. Active participants. You know, the evangelist, Billy Sunday, and if you haven't heard of him, I invite you to look him up, said, Christianity and patriotism are synonyms. And just like 
Hell and traitors are synonymous. Powerful words. Many Christians see God's goals and the country's goals as one and the same. Therefore, it is not just civic duty to protect, love, and support American America. It is your Christian duty. Church has been talked into keeping our mouths shut, and we've lost our generation. Someone once said, who'll get this next generation? The one who wants it the most. Do we have youth in our church? Do we have patriots? Have we taught them? Have we passed the story? Have we done our job as parents in schools? What are they going to do to you if you teach patriotism and God? Cut your tongue out? Take your paycheck away. Oh, my. It's such severe. Of course, we may be headed to more persecution because of our schools of thought. This is the danger of anti-patriotism, and I would invite you to come up with an answer for every one of these. The schools of thought is virtually any expression of national pride is seen as fascist or racist. Racist. (laughs) They rhyme. (laughs) Have you noticed that that's what they call it every single time we voice our opinion? Every time we say, America is great, that's what we're accused of. Racism, of all things. Virtually any expression. How can it be switched? The second school of thought is globalism. The complete opposite of this doctrine is to think that it's a globalistic community. That the whole world is our... No. The only thing that makes us family with the world is the blood of Jesus Christ. Apart from that, it is not a globalistic society. We have been lied to and we have bought the law. We have bought it and we bought it through social media. The worst doctrine is the doctrine of self-hate. The politicians have talked us into hating ourselves. We've made it with victims, apologizing for being the best, for taking people, having freedom. They have literally taken us apart with the ideal that we must self-hate, and they sell it as if it's Christian. There's a Greek saying, no man loves his city because it's great. He loves it because it's his. Listen to what the Word of God says. Acts 17, 26. From one man, he created all nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and when they should fall. And he determined their boundaries. God created nations. God created border walls. Woe to those who tamper with boundaries. Verse 27, the next verse is, His purpose. What was God's purpose in creating nations? His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. He goes from the nations to the individual. Seeking God. Those who don't appreciate patriotism try to alter history. These are serious charges. These are serious charges. This is what anti-patriotism does. It takes us from literally changing the definition, making accusations of switching who's on what side, the self-hate, the globalism, the purposes of God, and altering history. That's what's happening. Personally, I think it's different. I think the reason for this is because we're afraid to love. I think it is because 
We're afraid to let ourselves love because love has risk. And we're afraid to say, I love America without shame. We make fun of it. Oh, it's cheesy to make a movie that says, I love America, to talk about Americans being great. It's been so long since we've made a, a movie that says we're Americans and we're proud. Or we're Americans and we have respect. That's what the word is, is saying. Movies of America being inspirational stopped in the 50s and early 60s. It stopped. They said they're cheesy. Frank Capra had played a large part in America when they said he invented America. I read his book to find out what that meant. Being afraid to love, to let ourselves love. Can you let yourself love? To talk about the pioneers, maybe it's not intellectual anymore. Maybe it's not the way that we like to see ourselves. What happens if we don't really love? I'm telling you, don't be afraid to love. We have a huge problem, a trend, and it's this generation, and they're our children, the millennialist, the millennials. One wrote this, and he said, my generation is not very patriotic. I took a few sentences out of what he said, because I'd like to hear it from him. He said, I feel mildly unpleasant adding my voice to another article concerned with the shortcomings of young Christians in the U.S. From their alleged poor work ethic, their flightiness, instability, obsession with cell phones, every corner of the internet seems to offer a critique. I added in, and they're self-focused. Degree, decreases in love for country are more pronounced among political liberal millennials, which is the majority of them, while there is almost no change in patriotism among conservative millennials. The trend is not in the conservative millennials. It's only in the liberals. However, one trend is particularly concerning. It has become more and more apparent to me that among some of my peers, there is a dissatisfaction and sometimes an antagonism towards our country. It is Barack Obama's legacy that while he made his overseas trips apologizing for America, every opportunity, every platform, he apologized for being us. It's a terrible, terrible thing that must be repented of. Decreases in love for the country are more pronounced among the political liberal. Intellectually, it must be tiring to constantly use a lenient standard to judge the moral character and responsibility and guilt of the Middle East. Did you hear what he was saying? It must wear you out intellectually to try to have a double standard, a lenient standard, to say the moral character and responsibility and the guilt of the Middle Eastern countries is one thing when you compare it and use a completely different legalistic standard to judge and dismiss the moral character of your own country. How do we judge ourselves falling short in the area of moral character? Adopting a view that perpetually shames your own country and implicitly rejects any type of redemption seems like a very non-Christian posture. America is imperfect, but she is a huge gift to the world. The danger of this trend, the danger of what happens if we keep going down this path, the danger if patriotism is not taught. It starts this thing 
of what they do is they complain. Are your children complaining in your home? It's because they're not patriotic. No one is thankful. They just complain. Self-hate. Something better than what they have. The grass is always greener on the other side. They don't appreciate what they have now. That's the millennium. And it's a sign of what happens when the love starts disappearing. There is a mindset that comes with patriotism. It's gratitude. It's gratitude to God. Not just gratitude alone. Not just saying to yourself, I'm thankful to be born here. But thankful to God. Gratitude. Maintaining stewardship. Thankful for those who gave their life fighting for and keeping. And fighting for it to keep it. Thankful. If you raise a grateful kid, you'll raise a patriotic kid. It's gratitude that is the opposite of patriotism. With thankfulness, the gratitude is something that you must feel. It can't be something where you think it only, where it's only something you, you say with your mouth and you don't mean it with your heart. Gratitude is a feeling word where you truly appreciate your freedom. Gratitude will cure 90% of spiritual illness. Gratitude. The other mindset of patriotism is intercession for the country. Praying for more than you pray for yourself. Praying for more than yourself. Country. Praying for something more than yourself. How much of your prayer time do you spend praying for something more than yourself? Your country. Crying out. A bigger perspective. Get out of your box. There's other things to pray for and not only yourself. That is patriotism. That is love. Patriotism. And this is my conclusion. Patriotism. You have to love something in order to fix it. I woke up this morning, actually a week ago, I wrote the word patriotism on my top of my sheet and I thought, is that what you have to talk about the gift of America? Is that what you have for us today? Patriotism. And then this morning, he woke me up with these words. You can't fix something if you don't love it. You have to love something to fix it. Haters don't have any power to fix America. Not one idea, no power. You can't fix something you hate. Facing the study of history as a patriot. When you love it and you study it, and the whole thing you do is built on love. You have the power to go back into the past and figure out what to do in the future. You must love for God to give you the keys to strengthen, to make great. What I think patriotism is with the millennials is that they're afraid to love. They're cynics. They're afraid of getting hurt. And I'm making a call. But the millennials must change this trend. They must change it. You have to be a part. The message that I'm putting out is that they must change this downward trend. It has to be changed. They have to open up their heart and to love. What causes the hate? This is something that must be changed in their heart with love. Because what C.S. said, oh yeah, it's a part of our love. So what would a healthy, God-loving form of patriotism look like on you? Amen.